On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he taught his disciples about the coming of the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit. Specifically, he promised them that his departure would bring about the long-awaited age of the Spirit. In John 14, we find recorded there for us in the upper room Jesus' words in verses 16 and 17, where he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Beloved, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, if you are a child of God, then you and I, we live in this age of the Spirit. This is the the new covenant. He is the sign and seal of the new covenant. And it's his presence in us, with us, and beside us that is the key to living the Christian life. It is the key. Open your Bibles up to the fifth chapter of Ephesians where we return this morning to begin to look in detail at that section that we overviewed last week. In particular, this morning, we're going to begin to look at verse 18 of chapter 5. But by way of reminder, last week we noted that beginning in verse 15 of chapter 5, that Paul has five commandments For the believers there at Ephesus that by application are for us, these five commandments he has arranged into a series of three statements where he says, don't do this, but do this. So the not this, but this kind of arrangement. You see it in verse 15, right? Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. The days are evil. Verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the third one, here in verse 18 for us, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is the third of those three not this but this arrangements that he has for us. In this final statement about being filled with the Spirit actually grammatically provides the, the lead-in to the, to the remaining section here. Verses 19 through 21 help explain his statement about being filled with the Spirit, the last of which in verse 21, where he says, be in submission or be subject to one another, provides the foundation for the household code beginning in verse 22, running all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, that submission to proper God-ordained authorities. So we looked last time. That's how this whole package fits together. So we need to spend some time thinking about verse 18 because it really does lead in to the really the remaining uh, section here of this letter. And so As we look at verse 18, I don't want to just rush through it. I want to slow down and take some time to unpack 
this verse. It's a very important verse. And so what I've done here is to arrange our study of verse 18 with a series of questions. So I'm going to use the question-answer kind of format, and I have a series of questions that we'll ask and answer in order to help us understand and live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I've been titling this series, Living Under the Influence. Living Under the Influence. And this morning, it's basically an introduction, an introduction to living under the influence. So the first question in the series here to ask and to answer is, why is this study so important? Why is it so important that we slow down in verse 18 here and think more seriously about it? In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 28 and running through verse 30, that we have been predestined by God to be conformed to the image of Christ. He says in verse 28, And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here's the phrase, to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 28 to 30. So the question that one should ask oneself is, how does this happen? This golden chain of redemption that results in our conformity to the image of Jesus Christ most perfectly in our glorification, how does it happen? How does it come about? Because it's not just something that we're waiting for in the future. It's not just the future hope, although it is that, to be sure. But there's a here and now reality to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to being changed into Christ-likeness. How? How does it happen? Is it a result of effort on our part? Or is it that we just sort of let go and let God? I mean, after all, if he has predestined it to happen, then what role do we play in this process? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What role do we play? When talking about Growth in Christ-likeness. Inevitably, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, enters into the discussion. Inevitably, this verse comes up. And people say, to grow in the likeness of Christ, one needs to be filled with the Spirit. Great. What does that mean? We'll find out. But speaking of this verse... John MacArthur, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes the following. And, and, I, and I quote this for you because it just gives you a, an inkling of how seriously people take this verse, Bible teachers and commentators. Where he writes, quote, Outside of the command for unbelievers to trust in Christ for salvation, there is no more practical and necessary command in Scripture than the one for believers to be filled with the Spirit. That's quite a claim. 
That's quite a claim. Basically, what he's saying is that there are two important commandments. One is, right, to, to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And second is, once you have been saved, that you are to be filled with the Spirit. Wow. Well, it's, this study is important precisely because it takes aim at the very heart of the doctrine of sanctification, the growth in Christ-likeness. The relationship of the believer, my relationship, your relationship, if you're a believer this morning, to the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit himself. What is our relationship to him? How we understand this verse, how we understand this verse affects really, how we approach the, the, the ethical portions of this letter. Without this verse, without, without him saying, be filled with the Spirit, one could, could come away from the, 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 the sections in chapters 4 and 5 here thinking, wow, this sounds an awful lot like legalism. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, Right? Think about, just let your mind think, and your eyes perhaps reflect back to, to chapter 4, in all the statements about put off and put on, right? We need to, we need to put off the old man. We need, to, we need to stop behaving like our former unsaved selves, and we need to replace that with God-honoring behaviors, right? That's, he talks about all of that in chapter 4, right? If you used to lie, don't lie anymore. Tell the truth. You used to steal, stop stealing, get a job, give to people, and on and on he goes. And here, in beginning in verse 22 and running all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, we find the household code, where he's going to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's easy to say. That's like impossible to do unless and until the Spirit of God works in me. Wives, see to it that you respect your husband. Children, obey your parents. Contemporizing for employees and employers and how you interact with one another. I mean, these are some very, very lofty and hugely important statements about Christian morality and ethics. And yet it can't be that you just have to work harder. Just try harder. Men, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Try harder. You can't do it. You can't do it without the Spirit's enablement. It can't be done. And wives, you, you can't submit and, and respect this man without the Spirit's enablement. He's too flawed. He's too broken. He's going to mess up way too many times. Way too many times. Children, obey your parents. Those broken people who respond sometimes angrily or unfairly or unjustly? Yeah, them. And beloved, it's just, 
It's not possible. These things are not possible without the enablement of the Spirit. So there's a very, very practical reason that we need to understand this verse. It's the key to everything that follows. So let's dig in. Let's dig in. Second question. Why warn about wine? Why warn about wine? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a prohibition here, Paul gives. It's a prohibition against drunkenness. And, and at first glance, it doesn't seem like a little out of place. Kind of breaks the flow of the context a little bit, right? I mean, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men. Make the most of your opportunities, right? Don't be foolish. Understand the will of the Lord. We look back on that where the will of the Lord is, is the proclamation of the gospel to, to Gentiles and Jews and in the formation of the one body of Christ. I mean, all of these lofty things. And then, and don't get drunk with wine. The fact that it is or, or seems a bit abrupt, ha, has produced a number of possible interpretive schemes as to what to do with this part of the verse. The commentators are not united here. And it, and it boils down to essentially three different points of view. Three different points of view, and, and basically everybody acknowledges the three points of view, and then they start saying, well, I hold this, and I hold this, and I hold this, and so forth, and I'm going to give you the three points of view. The first, and it's popular, the first point of view is this, is some see the reference here, and do not get drunk with wine, as a reference to the ancient pagan cult of Dionysius, Dionysius, the, the god of wine, Roman Bacchus, same false god. This god of wine, whose adherents thought that they would rise to the level of divine consciousness through the use of intoxicating drink, wild music, and sexual perversion. That, was, that sort of characterized the, the worship of Dionysius or Bacchus. Supposedly, when, when one was given over to this kind of debauchery, then Dionysius supposedly entered in and, and filled their bodies. That was what was taught. That's probably a good place as any to say this. Understanding backgrounds for different biblical passages is not always easy. If you don't find exact statements in the text, then, then it's a little bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You ever had that? You know, your spouse is on the phone and they're talking to somebody and you're sitting in the room and you're listening and you're trying to figure out what it is the other person on the other end of the line is saying, right? Based on the responses that you're hearing somebody give. And it can be a little bit like that at times. For example, here, of trying to figure out exactly what is going on in Ephesus that causes Paul to write this. A little bit like that. So, possibility of Dionysius or Bacchus. But no direct statements. No direct statements here. That the Ephesians themselves were engaged 
generally engaged in that kind or, or had come from that kind of pagan background. It was just one of many, many gods that were worshipped throughout the ancient pagan world. Other commentators come back, and this is not super popular, but some, and I'll mention it to you, some suggest that Paul is aware here that, that wine is being misused in the, in the Lord's table, in the communion celebration, like, for example, in, first, or in Corinthians, in Corinth. There we don't have to guess. Paul says it exactly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21, he, spe- he spells out the problem there, which is drunkenness at the communion celebration. So some postulate that Paul here is addressing a similar kind of abuse, and, and he's writing to correct that problem. That's why he says, don't get drunk with wine. But again, no direct evidence. No direct evidence to support this view. Third, third view. The third basic view here is that the teaching is a a continuation of Paul's uh, contrast that he has been drawing beginning back in verse 17, so let your eyes go there, of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, and and so forth. And so this is just a continuation of a theme that has been running all through this entire section. And it's the basic theme of you were formerly dark, You formerly lived in darkness, you were darkened in your understanding, you were separated from the life of God, but now you are children of light, live like who you really are. Chapter 5, verse 8, right? You formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. In support of this is is the use of the and here in verse 18, which kind of Contextually indicates kind of a continuation statement. Now, the the two previous commands, the the two previous not buts uh, in uh, verses 15 and 17 are are more general in nature, and we, we looked at that last week. But this one's specific. Those are more general. This one's specific. They are the temple of the of the Spirit, right? Verse 22, chapter 2, you are the temple, the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So it seems like what Paul is addressing here is is because they are the the temple of the Spirit, they are are to allow him unhindered access to, to every single room of the house, including their relationship to a common beverage of the day, wine. And as you read in backgrounds and so forth, and by the way, I'm inclined to this answer or this interpretation. I think this one has a slight edge over over the first one. Drunkenness was a major problem in the Roman Empire. You can read pagan writers about this. You can read the, the church fathers, biblical writers, so forth. Drunkenness was a serious problem, and that shouldn't surprise us because drunkenness is a serious problem in most days and ages. So I think that's what he's dealing with. Now it's interesting, this prohibition here, do not get drunk. It's a, in, in Greek, it's a present middle imperative, and 
All that means is that, that it, it's not conveying the idea for them to stop doing something that they're already doing. So Paul is not writing here to the church in Ephesus who has a problem with drunkenness. And he's telling them, stop, you know, stop doing that. What he is saying here, and, and, and another way potentially to translate this would, would be something like this, make it your habit not to get drunk. Okay? So it's not a prohibition to stop doing something you're already doing, but, it's, but it's, a, it's a prohibition or a statement or command that says, you know, don't do this. Don't get involved in this. Do not get drunk. Why? Why? Well, you see it there in the second part of the verse, right? Why? Because drunkenness leads to Asotia is the Greek word. Asotia. It, it's translated dissipation here. For that is dissipation. It's translated debauchery in some other English translations. Dissipation or debauchery. Dissipation or, or debauchery is, is a characteristic of spiritual darkness. It's the antithesis of the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Often the references, you know, translated in your English, the Holy Spirit, they'll, they'll be translated, actually in the Greek, it's the Spirit, the Holy One. The Spirit, the Holy One. Lots of spirits. The Holy One. Now, this, uh, this noun, asotia, actually only has a, uh, some very limited usage in the New Testament. Actually only occurs two other places outside of this text right here, two other places. And then it occurs in its adverb adverbial form, acetosis, just once. And in each case, it's, it's always associated with an indulgence in sensual pleasures, typically in the realm of drunkenness and sexual immorality, hence the English debauchery or Dissipation. So Titus. Asotia is used there. The noun is used in Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where uh, Paul leaves Titus in Crete and, and gives him the mission to go throughout the island of Crete and, and to um, ordain elders in the various churches there. And so he gives uh, the, the, the qualifications for an elder. And, and here, a part of the qualifications of an elder revolve around their home. How well do they do in their home? What kind of a shepherd are they in their home? And so he says here in, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of asotia or rebellion. Not accused of debauchery or rebellion. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of asotia or debauchery, the, the English Standard Version translates it, and they malign you. 
In other words, this is what you used to be. This is who you are. They're still like, they have, you know, they haven't changed. You've changed. And your old friends, they malign you because why? Well, because you don't want to do that stuff anymore. That's not who you are. It's not who you are. It belongs to the dark life. The adverb asotos appears in Luke 15. Luke 15, the account of the prodigal son. 15.13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. Remember, he had, he had said to his father, basically, I wish you were dead. Can you give me, I want my share of the inheritance now. And there he squandered his estate with asotos, loose living. Loose living. It also appears in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament in Proverbs 28. So there's one more. Proverbs 28, verse 7, uses asotia there as well. It says, he who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of, and the NASB translates it, gluttons, humiliates his father. But the word there is asotia, and it, and it could be he who is a companion of those who tend towards debauchery. Humiliates his father. Humiliates his father. Now, why does Paul contrast drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit? Why? I think the answer is, is because he is presenting two contrasting lifestyles. Dissipation or, or you know, debauchery versus moral excellence and love. And they, and they can just... You know, Asotia can just stand in for so many things. One belongs to the old man, the one who is in Adam. And the life of moral excellence and power belongs to the new man who is in Christ. Now, with regard to drunkenness, the Scripture clearly prohibits it. Clearly prohibits drunkenness. It's both by command here, Exodus, or excuse me, uh, Ephesians 5:18, and also by example. So, for example, Genesis chapter nine, you know, verse twenty and following, with Noah, and he plants a vineyard after the flood, and he makes, you know, a beverage from it, and and so forth, and he gets drunk, and it leads to that whole uh, dreadful incident with his with his son. So the Bible clearly prohibits drunkenness. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't, nobody argues about that. Seriously, anyway. But the overall treatment of the topic of alcohol in the Bible is, is more nuanced than that. There's a, there's a Teaching, I would say, of a cautious enjoyment. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, but, but I, would, I would call it a cautious enjoyment under the Lordship of Christ. Under the Lordship of Christ. It would be easy, by the way, from verse 18 to just hammer away, you know, kind of like a prohibition sermon. But that wouldn't do us any good. I think we need to be fair to what the Bible teaches more comprehensively.
This topic of, of the use of alcoholic beverages for the Christian is a place where we need to be carefully respectful of people. We need to honor brothers and sisters whose scruples are different than ours, whose convictions differ in these matters. For example, Paul tells us in Romans 14, speaking there about the church in Rome, where he says in verse 14, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So in other words, to, to, to have compassion upon and to, and to have a powerful love for our brothers and sisters in Christ such that we're willing to restrain our own liberty in certain matters. But nonetheless, I think a... a, a a fair look at the scriptures with regard to the topic of, I'll just call it alcohol or wine in the scriptures, because that's primarily what it talks about, is much more broad than simply, you shall not. For example, for example, and this is not going to be comprehensive, this is not a comprehensive defense of the use of alcohol, but for example, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 10, the Old Testament, an abundant harvest was considered a blessing from God because it provided much wine. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. It was, it was a mark of the blessing of the Lord, an abundant harvest grape crop. Wine itself was associated with celebrations, gatherings for, for celebratory purposes in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Job chapter 1, verse 13, you remember Job, right? God points him out, there's, there's no one more righteous than this guy. It says on 13, in 13, now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. In other words, they were having a feast. There was a time of great celebration here, and, and wine was part of that celebration. You flip over to the New Testament to John chapter, 10, or chapter 2 and verse 10, right? Jesus at the wedding of Cana. You remember what he did there. John chapter 2, verse 10 where he turned water into wine. Such good wine that, the, that the, the wine steward said, you know, the typical wedding, people serve the best wine first, and then when people's taste buds are, you know, a little bit numbed and they can't tell the difference, then they serve the cheap stuff. I've been to a lot of weddings, and that's exactly how it goes. But here, he says, you have... Save the best for last, right? Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So it's, it's clearly associated with a celebratory event, a great feast. 
One of the three mandatory feasts for all Israel was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the, called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Ingathering. It's all the same. It was an autumn feast, and it was celebrated at the end of the grain and grape harvest. So they were given a, 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 this mandatory feast to come to to celebrate the Lord's provision of their barns and their vats. The Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 16, 13 speaks of that. Wine was offered to God as part of the mandatory sacrificial system. Leviticus 23, 13. It was also, could be a free will offering to God. But interestingly, the priests were prohibited from drinking wine or strong drink while ministering in the tent of meeting. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9. Usually, when one brought, a, a, particularly a free will offering, part of it would be offered to the Lord, and then the, 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 the worshiper and, and his family who brought it would, would eat the rest of it along with some of the priests. They would celebrate it together. But, but here, if that priest is on duty, basically, then they're not to partake. It's wine or strong drink, and i just put this in here. Strong drink is uh, likely beer. And the reason I say that is because uh, distilling wasn't invented till about 800 B.C. So this predates that by 1,000 years. Well, not 1,000 years. Uh, what is that? 600 years. 600 years. Numbers chapter 6, where there we are told about the Nazarite, a, a person under a Nazarite vow distinguished himself or herself by abstaining from normal practices like cutting your hair, drinking wine, or other fermented beverages. One under a Nazarite vow willingly, voluntarily surrendered normal parts of their life. Psalm 104, I'll turn you there. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Wine is used there as an image of joy and blessing. Verse 14, he causes, that is God, causes the cattle to grow for, excuse me, the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he might bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Though the wine which makes man's heart glad, he says. This is an image of the joy and blessing of the Lord. Turn to the right to Isaiah 25, where it is used there in the context of a great millennial feast. And it is used there as, as a picture of the abundance when Christ returns and establishes his great Davidic kingdom here on earth, that thousand-year kingdom spoken of in Revelation 20 and through much of the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah 25, verse 6 he says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. So you see it. 
That, by the way, is, I'm convinced, back in John chapter 2, the purpose of Jesus' first miracle that John records there. In John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, in verse 11, John says, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I think it's far more than simply making water into wine. There is, there is something being communicated here, and I believe what's being communicated here is this is what they were looking for with the coming kingdom. The prophets said, this will characterize the kingdom. And so when Jesus presents himself to the nation, his first time, his first sign that he does is to show them the abundance and the lavishness of the kingdom feast. Because why? Well, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. How do I know? Well, the king is here, and he just provided enough wine for a major celebration. A major celebration. I think that's what Jesus, and that's what John understands Jesus' work there at Cana of Galilee to be about. One more. Wine was drunk by the participants at the Passover. It was part of the Passover meal. There were four cups at the meal. Jesus transforms the meaning of one of those cups and says, this is now my blood, right, poured out for you. It's the, it's the deep, dark red color of the wine, I think, that provides the, the, the continuity here of that this is symbolizes his blood. And so when we take the Lord's table together, we use a, a, a beverage drawn from the vine that is deep and dark in color and blood-like because it reminds us. It reminds us. So those are just a few passages that, that speak about the use of wine, alcoholic beverage, for, as I say, this place of cautious enjoyment under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But also, the scriptures bring balance to this because they repeatedly warn about the capacity for alcohol to cloud our judgment and to lead to foolish behavior. In other words, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. One might call it a dangerous delight. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. In other words, the, the, the consumption, the overconsumption of this can lead one into very foolish behaviors. Very foolish. Proverbs 23 and uh, verse 19. Listen, my son, the father says, and be wise. Direct your heart into the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. In other words, don't hang around with people who party all the time because they're going nowhere in life. They have no ambition. They're going to, it's going to lead them into ruin. One of my favorites, Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. Who has woe? 
Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Answer, those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Now, mixed wine would be wine that's fortified, usually with certain spices and things like that. Verse 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. Right? They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. That's a very picturesque portrait of one who lingers too long. It comes under that intoxicating influence that leads to all kinds of behaviors. They contradict the work of the Spirit. Now, some Bible teachers argue that the wine of antiquity was of a lower alcoholic content than today's table wines. And therefore, they will argue that, that we should completely abstain from all alcoholic beverages today because it's a different kind of wine. Personally, I've never seen any convincing evidence to such things. I've seen it postulated. I've never seen it with any kind of serious convincing evidence. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I've never seen it. I'll go on to say here is, is I think the alcoholic content of wine in antiquity versus wine today even if we could know, is basically irrelevant to the fundamental issues. It's basically irrelevant. What I mean is, is whether today's wines have a higher alcoholic content than biblical wine does not affect the basic purpose, the basic cautions, and the basic prohibitions relating to human consumption. I think the, the best one could argue for is that if, if wine today is of a higher alcoholic content than wine in the, of antiquity, then you just need to be more careful. It can creep up on you faster. But remember the, the, the allegation against the disciples on Pentecost, right, which occurs in the morning and is that they've got too much sweet wine and they're drunk. And Peter says, what are you, crazy? It's only in the morning. You, basically, you know. You didn't drink enough of it to, for that to happen. So, sweet wine, lower content? Okay. What about the tragedies associated with drunkenness? What do we do with that? And they are. They're real. Some of you, personal experience. Maybe a family member. Maybe yourself. There's no question, there's no denying it. It's true in antiquity as well. No question. I mean, when you consider all of the tragedies associated with it, isn't that reason enough to, 
to just abstain from all consumption of alcohol? Right? DWI, all, all of that stuff. People who drink the paycheck. Is that reason enough to abstain? And the answer is for some people, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. That is reason enough. Paul says in Romans 14, and this is so important, you ought to decoupage this thing and put it in your house. Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. So important for gray matters, matters of, of differing Christian conviction. Where Paul says here in Romans chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, if you know or think that God disapproves of something, then you must not do it, and if you do, you have sinned. And the sin is not the fact that you ate or drank something. The sin is that, is that you knew or thought God disapproved of this, and you didn't care and did it anyway. The violation of your conscience is the sin. So for some people, maybe many of you here this morning, your answer to the question is, isn't the, uh, the tragedies associated with alcohol reason enough to abstain? Yes. Yes, for you. And you should be convinced in your own heart of that and not go against your conscience. But, beloved, the antidote to sin is not law, but gospel. This is very, very important to, to get a hold of. The antidote to sin is not law, but gospel. In other words, the antidote to drunkenness is not law. It is gospel. It is the new creation where you are no longer united with Adam. You are now united with Christ the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Listen, if law could restrain sin, if law could restrain sin, then there would be no need of the new covenant. Gluttony is a problem. Would you agree? It's all through the Bible. If the solution to gluttony was a prohibition of supersized fast food. But it's not, is it? The solution to gluttony is not to prohibit supersized fast foods. So also the solution to drunkenness is not the prohibition of alcohol. That is not the solution. Go back here, if you're not already, to Ephesians 5. I just want you to see something. Paul clearly prohibits drunkenness. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But notice that the, the contrast that he presents here is to be filled with the Spirit. Not abstinence from alcohol. 
He doesn't say, do not get drunk with wine and never let it touch your lips. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but do not do this, but do this. What is the this? It's to be filled with the Spirit. It's gospel. It's the gospel that is the antidote. May we think on these things. The Spirit will give us wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of all the implications built into this little section of Paul's letter to the Ephesian believers. Be filled with the Spirit. And our Father, it is such a critical reality for us to understand and to implement because it's what it means to, to live the Christian life. It is, it is the source of our power over sin and temptation. It is the means and mechanism by which you are predestining us to the image of Christ works itself out in space and time. And so, Father, we need to understand it well. And we pray that you would help us to do so. Father, it's such a, such a safe prayer to make because we know that your Spirit wants us to understand the Word and wants us to apply it. So we can pray this with, with incredibly solid confidence that, that you will answer. And so we make this prayer in full confidence, in Jesus' name, amen.